0: This morning we're gonna be turning to Romans chapter 5, particularly verse 8. And the title I've given to this morning's message is The Assurance of God's Love. The Assurance of God's Love. Now, I wonder if anyone remembers playing the game. She loves me, she loves me not, or he loves me, he loves me not. Uh, I'm not saying I've ever tried it myself, I'm not saying, not suggesting that you've tried it, but maybe you remember other children playing this game, the the aim was to determine if someone that you really, really liked really liked you back to decide if they loved you or not. And the way it worked, so I'm told, is you'd pick a flower, usually a daisy, and you'd begin to pick off the petals one petal at a time, and with each petal, you alternatively say, she loves me, she loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And the final petal revealed the truth about, the, about this other person and how they felt about you. And if you didn't get the answer you wanted, of course, you just quickly picked another daisy and started all over again. So it was just a bit of lighthearted fun. The reason I mention it, though, is because I think as Christians, we sometimes play a similar, though far less light-hearted, version of this game in our heads, trying to work out if God really loves us. And there are two ways I think we attempted to play it. Either we look at our lives and our behavior recently and we see a whole noticing a good deed that we've done, we tell ourselves, he loves me. And then noticing a sin that we've committed, we say, he loves me not. Or we play a slightly more gospelized version, which works like this, We forget about our good deeds because we know they don't really count, they don't merit or earn God's love. So instead we imagine we start out the Christian life with a graciously full quota of God's love. But then over time our continued sins and failings as a Christian start to wear down and pluck away his love, diminishing it petal by petal until we start to suspect that his love for us is slowly but surely being replaced by an ever-growing disappointment. Don't we sometimes picture and assume that God's love for us works something like that? Maybe we don't say it aloud. Maybe even in our heads we know that it's not quite right, yet our hearts can still feel weighed down by a slowly diminishing sense of assurance, an unsettling dullness, in the place of what was once a far more lively confidence in the love of God. Our conscience is quietly whispering whispering to us on a regular basis that once again our latest sin must have in some sense plucked away another petal of God's love. What then is the source of our problem? Why does our confidence in God's love wane like the moon in the night sky? Why does it come and go like the, the, the tide on the seashore so regularly and so frequently? The answer, I think, is given in Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. And the answer is simple yet profound. The reason our assurance of God's love is so fragile is because we easily forget the true nature of God's saving love. And we lose sight of where his love is most decisively displayed. Um, And this is Paul's primary aim throughout all of uh, Romans 5, verses 6 to 11, and especially in the central verse, verse 8, which is our one-verse wonder for this morning, to give to every believing heart the strong and unshakable assurance of God's love. So let's read the whole of that passage together, verses 6 to 11, and then we'll hone in on verse 8. Here's what Paul writes. For while we were still weak... For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So verse 8 is our main focus for this morning, as I've said. And Let me just read verse 8 one more time. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ did for us. Uh, now, just before I introduce uh, some headings for this morning, let me first draw your attention to one particularly important word in this verse that really shapes my three points that I'm going to give to you, that we're going to work through. And that word is shows. Shows. Because the word for shows here, the Greek word for shows that Paul uses here, means not just to point out something vaguely in the distance, or oh, it's somewhere over there, but actually to step forward and demonstrate it and show proof of it. It means to hold something f- And what we find in this verse are two definitive proofs of God's love for us. Two prongs of evidence on what is really the same kind of gospel House key or door key given to us by God to unlock the door to a richer and deeper assurance of His love. And so we're going to make those two proofs our first two headings for this morning. And then, thirdly and finally, we'll, we'll apply those proofs to some of our biggest and commonest doubts about God's love for us. So let's ask the all important question the game that most of us swear we've never played Does He love me? or love me not, how can I know for sure? Proof number one, says Paul, heading number one, proof number one, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Now now think just for a moment about the different ways we might try to show and demonstrate our love for another person. We've all been there, haven't we, on the eve of an anniversary or a birthday or... It's Christmas Eve, and you're desperately trying to rack your brain to think of what to give to someone to demonstrate your love for them. And the places our minds tend to go, apart from blind panic, are to things. We think about things that we could buy for them or make for them to give them. And granted, not just material things, but other things too, like our time or our attention or our words and actions of love for them. And throughout the Bible, God also demonstrates his love for his people through the giving of many things as well. He gives us life and breath and every good thing. He gives us his counsel and care and attention. He writes prose and poetry and songs that declare his heartfelt love for his people. He often steps in to provide help or provision or rescue. And perhaps often when we wrestle with this question of whether God loves us or whether he still loves us, our minds tend to go to assessing the things that he's given us. Has he given us sickness or health? Happiness or sorrow? Comforts or griefs? Wealth or poverty? Ease or difficulty? The problem is, not only are the the things that he gives us insufficient on their own to really deeply assure us of his love for us. But at first glance, they can often suggest the very opposite. At first glance, our difficult circumstances, and maybe as well our our internal feelings of failure again to resist particular sins, can lead us to think that God doesn't really love us or care about us at all. We lose the assurance of his love. Yet according to Romans 5 verse 8, the the real problem is not in our circumstances or even in our sins. The real problem is we're looking in all the wrong places for the assurance of his love. Because the ultimate showcase of God's love for us is not in fact to be found in things at all. It is to be found in a person, in a saviour. The ultimate proof of God's love for us is Christ. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4 verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. When God determined to set forth the ultimate manifestation of his love for us, the ultimate proof of his love, he didn't send riches, he didn't send a care package, he didn't send just another human prophet or ruler. He didn't even just settle for sending an angel from heaven. God sent his own son. From the highest heights of heavenly glory, down into a world of sin and shame, the eternal son of God took on flesh. He came as a man. He came as a servant, not counting others more significant than himself. Although- How rightly he should have done, being the king of glory. But he came to spend his life in the service of others. But the measure of God's love doesn't stop for us there. With the incarnation, although what love God displays to us there in so great a condescension as the Son of God coming to live for us, coming to live with us. What love is there displayed, but God's love goes further still. The proof of his love is to be demonstrated in something far greater still, because four times over in this paragraph about God's love that we're looking at this morning, four times over, Paul refers to Christ's death for us. Christ died for the ungodly, verse six. Christ died for us, verse eight. We have now been justified by his blood, verse nine. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, verse 10. Again and again, Paul refers to Christ's death, so much so that by the end you want to ask, why, Paul? Why do you keep telling us the same thing about Christ dying, telling us over and over again? And the answer is simple yet profound, because it's not just the coming of Christ, but the death of Christ that is the ultimate proof of God's love for us. Calvary is the final measure of God's love for us, the pinnacle of his love, the supreme demonstration of God's love for you and me. And Paul wants every Christian reader to be utterly assured of the greatness of God's love. He wants us to see God's love for us demonstrated and displayed as clearly as could possibly be in the incomparably precious death of his son. As the hymn writer Isaac Watts once wrote, to see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow flow mingled down. Love so amazing, so divine, when we surveyed a wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. As one old pastor wrote David Clarkson, he said, What greater expression of love could the great God vouchsafe than to deliver his Son unto death? What greater expression could Christ make of his love to us than to die for us and to die such a death and in such a capacity in our stead? That he who gave life and being to all things and sustains all in life and being by the word of his power should die that infinite glory should suffer a shameful death, should endure the cross and despise the shame, that God, blessed forever, should become a curse and die a cursed death hanging on a tree, that he who was more valuable than 10,000 worlds should give himself a ransom for us and not think his life, his blood, dear, but lay it down freely as the price of our Redemption. Dear doubting Christians here this morning, doubtful oftentimes of God's great love for you. God wants you to see. He wants us to see. He wants us to know that he has proven in the profoundest and mightiest and surest possible way the matchless heights of his unfathomable love for you by sending Christ to die for you. That is the first proof in Romans 5 verse 8 of God's unchanging love for you. But there's something more. There is here a second proof, complementing and fleshing out the first, intended to take us even deeper into the depths of God's love for us. That second proof is this, our second heading for this morning, proof number two, Christ died for us, while we were still sinners. The first proof of the vastness of God's love was was found in what he sent Christ to do for us. The second proof is found in when he sent him to do it. Because God didn't wait to demonstrate his love for us until we had made ourselves better people, until we'd made ourselves more worthy and more deserving of his love. He didn't even hold back from sacrificing his son for us until at least the time came when we were ready to see and admit our sin. No. God chose to demonstrate the infinite heights of his love for us, sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In fact, you can tell it in Paul's mind, this second proof of God's love is just as important as the first. It's just as vital in convincing us of the true extent of God's love for us because just as he mentions Christ's death four times in verses 6 to 11, he also mentions the condition we were in four times when Christ died for us. So first of all, in verse 8, he reminds us that God demonstrated his love for us While we were still sinners. Which is to say, while we were still lawbreakers. While we were still willfully rebelling against the moral character of God. Willfully rejecting the goodness and the holiness of our God. Secondly, God showed his love to us while we were still ungodly. Verse 6. Though we were made in the image of God, we had all of us defaced his image in us. We opposed it and despised it and tore it to shreds. We eagerly made ourselves unlike God, ungodly, falling so far short of his original purpose for us that we would reflect his character and his image and his glory. Thirdly, verse 10 tells us Christ died for us while we were God's enemies while we were God-haters who wanted nothing to do with him, while given half a chance, we would have gladly done away with him and did when the chance was given to us. And at the same time, in return, God was also opposed to us. We were God's enemies, his holy wrath resting upon us. While we were unquestionably and unapologetically God's enemies, God showed his love for us by sending Christ to die for us. And to top it all, Paul reminds us, Christ died for us while we were weak, verse 6, and helpless. While we were weak and helpless. And this, sadly, is not the kind of nice, innocent, cat-stuck-up-a-tree kind of weakness and helplessness. This word weak in verse 6 speaks of our having blinded and incapacitated ourselves spiritually, of the way that we made ourselves entirely incapable of pleasing God or even seeking after him. It also speaks not just of a minor weakness or injury that we needed a little outside help with. No, our weakness was nothing less than complete spiritual deadness towards God. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. There was nothing that we could do to mend what we had broken. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Without God, without hope in this world, like those who had not only fallen into a pit too deep to climb out of, but those who had fallen into a deep pit and died. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. We could not have been more lost and undeserving. And it was precisely at that time, at just the right time, verse 6, that God chose to demonstrate his love for us just when we needed it most and just when we could not possibly have been further from deserving even an ounce of God's love. At just that very moment, God showed his love for us by sending Christ to die for us. Consider now, then, for a moment, what all of this tells us about the nature and character of God's love for us. It tells us that God's love is not like any other love that we have ever experienced or known, it it cannot be compared to human love, it is of an entirely different order. We as human beings generally love those who we deem worthy of our love. As Paul says in verse 7, sometimes we could even conceive of a love for another person that is so great that one might be willing even to die for that person, but only surely if that person is in some way good and worthy of our love. But God's love pays no attention to the worthiness of the person at all. That's so important. I've printed it in big red letters on my sheet to remind myself of the importance of this. God's love pays no attention to the worthiness of the person at all. In fact, he delights to set his love on the most unworthy and undeserving of all, on sinners, on the ungodly, on his enemies, on the spiritually helpless. Why else would Christ die for us while we were still sinners if it wasn't at least in part to show us that when God chooses to bestow his love on us, it isn't based on any good thing that is in us. So these then are the two prongs of this Romans 5 gospel key that begins to unlock the door to far deeper Christian assurance. Two concrete proofs that can overturn our deepest doubts about the true extent of God's love for us. Firstly, that Christ died for us. And secondly, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So let's now, finally, thirdly, apply the proof of God's love to our doubts. Let's apply the proof of God's love to our doubts. And to my mind, this passage speaks powerfully to at least two kinds of doubts about God's love that we might commonly wrestle with. The first one is we sometimes doubt whether God could love us at all. We doubt whether God could love us at all. Maybe, maybe this is what you're wrestling with right now. Could God ever loved me at all? And perhaps for you, this doubt has become big enough or is sometimes big enough that you sometimes wonder whether you're even a Christian or truly saved at all. Not because you're unwilling to admit you're a sinner. No, you're only too willing to recognize that and confess your sins to God. Not because you're unwilling to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. No, you know he's your only hope and there is nothing you want more than to find assurance of forgiveness and pardon and life in him. But the thing that so often robs you of your assurance is that you can't shake off those doubts that God's love couldn't possibly be big enough to pardon and welcome a sinner as guilty and messed up as you. But here's the error I think that doubt most often springs from. It comes from us imagining that God's love is really just a bigger and more perfect version of our own. And therefore we think as vast as his love might be, it still can't possibly be big enough to truly include me because there is so much sin that I'm aware of still in me that must surely disqualify me and make me unworthy of his love. Here's where Romans 5 speaks right into those kind of doubts it simply reminds us that is not the basis on which God's saving love works at all. Just think for a moment about measuring the respective heights of different people. Maybe you've got a, a tape measure that's two or three meters long. And someone, you measure them, and they come up to sort of one meter 80, and there's someone else, they one meter 60, and a, another person's just under two meters. There are differences between the different people, but the tape measure is sufficient to measure them all. But then take that same tape measure and decide that you're going to use it to measure the heat of the sun. You see, it's not just that your tape measure isn't long enough and it needs to be stretched or extended or laid out again and again and again. It's that you need a whole different kind of measure. One that doesn't just work on a different order of scale, one that's far, far bigger, but one that's able to measure something that works in an entirely different way. So that just as the heat of the sun can't be measured by your tape measure, so God's love can't be measured according to how worthy you think you are. It cannot be measured according to how worthy the recipients of his love are, or even how unworthy we are. As if he'll love people that are seven-tenths unworthy, but any worse than that and you're just beyond the pale beyond the reach of God's love. No, God's love doesn't operate in proportion to what is in us at all. Take your eyes entirely off yourself. is God's message to us in Romans 5.8. If you want to see the true measure of my love for you, take your eyes off yourself. I've given you a place that you can look every single moment of every day a place where you can measure the true vastness and greatness of my love for you in spite of all your sins and that place is the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died there is my love for you says god that while you were at your very worst and most wretched, I gave my own son to die for you. And so this morning, if you've confessed your sin to God and you've trusted in Christ and his sin-bearing death, then you can be certain not only that you're saved, but also that you are loved by God with an infinite, eternal, inexhaustible love. He has proven it to you beyond all shadow of a doubt at the cross. His love bears no proportion to your worthiness or unworthiness. His love for you is always and only in proportion to the worthiness of the one who died. That's how Romans 5 addresses that first major doubt of whether God could even love me at all. But the second major doubt I think it addresses is the one I I guess I made more reference to right at the start, that niggling doubt that now that we're Christians, although God never stops loving us entirely, surely his love does at least rise and fall in proportion to how well we're doing or in proportion to how much we're still sinning. Surely, as we said at the start, his love for us must be at least tinged with disappointment. As he sees the way, we still wrestle with the same sins day after day. And maybe taking it to the extreme, we even worry, what if he decides one day that he's finally had enough of all my sins and failings? What if he one day decides to take back his love and forsakes me altogether? And the essence of Paul's answer is found, again, in that important word we started with, shows as we saw at the start, this shows. This isn't God showing us something by simply pointing it out from afar, but God actually setting forth and proving it, proving the greatness of his love for us. But what we didn't give attention to earlier is the tense of that word shows. And it's really important because it doesn't say God showed, which I think is what we'd expect more as he's talking about the cross. It doesn't say God showed, but God shows present tense. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, of course, the cross is a once-for-all past event. Christ doesn't keep on dying for us to keep assuring us of God's love. It was a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So how can we know that God still loves us to the same extent today as he did when he first sent Christ to die for us. How can we be sure that his heart towards us doesn't change over time? Because, verse 8 tells us, the cross still shows his love for us. Christ once for all death is still, and always will be, the measure of God's continuing love towards every Christian believer. His love does not change towards us one single bit. No matter how many times we mess up and sin as Christians, God's love for us does not change. It's the same yesterday, today and forever, always of the exact same infinite measure that he demonstrated to us once and for all at the cross. His love towards us can no more diminish than the costliness of the cross could ever diminish. Of this, we can be assured. But but the assurances don't quite stop there. I know we're only looking at verse 8 properly, but I have to mention verses 9 and 10 briefly because Paul immediately builds upon the assurance of verse 8 with two more quick-fire reassurances in verses 9 and 10. In both of these verses, Paul puts forth further reasons to be confident of God's enduring love. And he he does it both times by making arguments from the greater to the lesser. The first reassurance he gives is a legal one, that since we've already been perfectly justified by Christ's blood, no less, how much more certain should we be that there simply cannot be any future wrath or penalty or punishment, no matter how small, left for us to face for our sin? Not when, as the song declares, complete atonement he has made, and by his death has fully paid the debt his people owed. That's the legal reassurance that God's love will carry on, that God's love does not change or diminish, arguing from the point of view of God's justice. But the second reassurance Paul gives in verse 10 is a relational one, arguing perhaps even more incredibly from the point of view of God's friendship. Friendship. So he says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Meaning, as we look back on God's great love for us while we were still his enemies, a love so great that while we were still sinners, God sent Christ to die for us, how much more confident and assured we should now be For he will go on loving us with the same limitless love now that he has made us his friends. Now that all hostility between us has been removed and we have already been reconciled to him through the infinitely costly death of his son. As Dane Ortland captures it in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, and I'll end with these words. We were enemies when God came to us and justified us. How much more will God care for us now that we are friends, indeed sons? He eagerly suffered for us when we were failing as orphans. Will he cross his arms over our failures now that we are his adopted children? His heart was gentle and lowly towards us when we were lost. Will his heart be anything different towards us now that we are found? He loved us in our mess then. He'll love us in our mess now. So when you sin, do a thorough job of repenting. rehate sin all over again. Consecrate yourself afresh to the Holy Spirit and his pure ways. But reject the devil's whisper that God's tender heart for you has grown a little colder, a little stiffer. God is not flustered by your sinfulness. If you're in Christ and only a soul in Christ would be troubled at offending him, your waywardness does not threaten your place in the love of God any more than history itself can be undone. The hardest part has been accomplished. God has already executed everything needed to secure your eternal happiness and he did that while you were an orphan. Nothing can now unchild you, not even you. Those in Christ are eternally secure within the tender heart of God. Let's pray.